Hey, nieces and nephews, Brian here. And Mike. Of course, in our Francis Ford Coppola luck, after we recorded, actually, I don't know, I feel like he has good luck. Eh, not really on his productions. Anyway, this is how we start podcasts. But um, like almost right after we recorded, we got huge megalopolis news. Would you say it was mega news? <laughs> yes, it was. We're going to talk about it more on the next episode we'll release. But Mike, first, let's quick talk about that image that was yes. posted at Megalopolis. What did you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting. Like, very, uh, I can't quite place the word, like, uh, kind of cryptic, alluring, um, interesting. I'm very interested. Uh, gothic, um, you know, historic, futuristic. It, it just brought all these words to mind. And, and I believe... I don't know that this is, I mean, can we consider this the poster perhaps? I don't know. It's just maybe like a, a poster image. It's, it's, and it says Megapolis in the font, I believe. It says it, it says Francis Ford Coppola's Megapolis, which is part cool, of me, which is awesome. Um, it has got like a dark city in the background, there's like a toppled statue. Yes. This is becoming so real. I'm so excited. Uh, there is more to talk about, so definitely tune into our next episode today. We just really start, but but get to the meat and potatoes of Mario Puzo's The Godfather, book one. Mm. So, you know, uh, if I may, just real quick, because I'm taking and now those were my those were my memories of an imprint. I'm looking at the image now, okay, and it is the statue toppled between two great houses leaning more towards one than the other Ooh. so we may you know i think within further investigation of this image um lies some answers interesting interesting yeah it seems like there might be some context hidden well somewhere. i can't wait mike so we're gonna have more megalopolis content on the next episode so make sure you listen to that for now check out our episode where we finally get in to the godfather book we're talking some really iconic scenes we're going to check out some deleted scenes as well but of course we're going to begin with a mic impression so enjoy so this is not joe mantegna this is joey zaza by the way very different than the first time anyhow this is Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar, the cut-by-cut cut Francis Ford Coppola podcast. And this, my friend, is a Cage Club podcast production. I mean, Shakespeare wrote poems about it. <laughs> Thank you, Joey Zaza, for calling us on your golden telephone or special telephone. Wait, th <laughs> there's a golden telephone in Godfather 2 that they pass around in Cuba. But I think he gives them, mm. like... He gives them an award and he was like, he's like, oh, he invented the telephone before Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, yes, yes. The Italian-American <laughs> of the Year Award. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I love that. Is so good. I love that. Oh, he's one of the best characters in the entire saga. That's why, again, hot take. If this is the first time you're hearing us talk about it, Mike and I do not hate Godfather 3. Quite the contrary. We enjoy a lot of it. Is it perfect? No, but we'll, we'll get there. Joey Zaza, I enjoy. Amazing. 
Uh, regardless, when I said I have a seat, have a glass, and welcome to Uncle Francis's wine cellar. <laughs> Sorry, right. I'm just la- I'm just laughing because more and more we have a dialogue, and then I just. I go, go, have a seat, have a glass, or sorry, whatever. I'm Brian Rodriguez. And then I'm like, where's Michael? We can't start the podcast without Michael. <laughs> oh, well, I guess we can start now because uh, I'm here. I'm, wait a minute. I'm here with Fat Tony from The Simpsons. Good oh, call Fat too. Tony. I am Joey Zaza. Oh, hey. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and, and full disclosure, if we seem a little bit disjointed, you know, we've been doing this for more than a year, a year and a half probably now. And nice. this episode. This episode. <laughs> kind of, but we're still figuring out the best formula of what to do here. And yeah. we were talking so much of the book previously that we took a little break and decided to divide the episode into pre-book stuff, as in all the games we play, all the news, and then just straight into the book. So... You might not hear it out there, nieces and nephews, but we're just going to be diving right in. Um, we recorded the first half of this a couple of days ago, and then we'll roll, roll right through into the second half. Um, it's all book chat today. Yep. And, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be seamless, you know, but otherwise, if not, you know why. <laughs> <laughs> this is good, though. I'm, I'm excited. Let's, uh, you know, been flipping through and Brian and uh, what I mentioned, I think, on the episode is has come true. And this is a weird because this intro is being recorded a little after, but also a little before we finished the episode. Uh, but this this has gotten me reading more. So it's already started. I've already been reading more since reading The Godfather. So it's working. Great, great, because we have a lot more to read in this one because we for this episode are only covering book one. Not just The Godfather, the first book of it, but book one is just the first section, which, again, covers the beginning to the restaurant scene. So, without further ado, let's discuss it. The Meucci Association has elected you their Italian-American Man of the Year. Meucci? Who's Meucci? He's the Italian-American who invented the telephone. He did it one year before Alexander Graham Bell. And this is the reason you've come to my home on this day. Uh, Mario Puzo's The Godfather. He is the author. And Mike, we see a bit of this in the offer, which is the first thing we covered here in Uncle Francis' Wine Cellar. Puzo had written some stuff, but it wasn't necessarily popular. Like, maybe it was good, but... He basically decides he needs to make money, and he wants to write something that he thinks is going to have mass appeal. Um, He does some research on Mm -hmm. the mafia. He has no experience with the mafia. He's never met a mafioso. But he writes this, and it becomes a huge success. Mammoth hit. And we are not—we should have said this at the beginning, but I'll say it now. As long as you say it. Say it. We are not the lottery pod. We're not here to dive into the book. I I said that. I said that way early. <laughs> Maybe I'll correct myself. I should have followed up by saying, this is not a book deep dive. We are more going to talk about how it relates to Coppola and the movie. We'll talk about, like, you know, what they took, what they didn't, what they left, how they changed things, you know, 
I mean, what are we discussing? Like how well a sentence is formed? I haven't really listened to that show. I don't know like what they get into so much. I think they just talk about plot and shit. I don't, you know, and if a book is well written, they like, oh, it's well written. If it's not, they're like, it's written like shite. But like, otherwise, I don't think they're like, check out this sentence. No, not about sentences. We're not going to go plot by plot. And then Michael does this. And then, then Sonny does that. Because no, everyone knows exactly. That. We assume that if you like this show, you've seen The Godfather. This is more about, like you said, what was kept in, what was left out. I feel like there's different characterizations oh, of certain huge, characters as well. Huge differences. Huh? They switched up some characters a lot. I do have to say that book one here is pretty yeah. faithful. There are some things that aren't. Well, the, it would be the other way around, right? So, like, the film is faithful. Sorry, sorry. To yes, book yes, one. yes, yes. Of course. For me, though, like, I say it that way because, of course. I saw the film before the book, and I'm assuming you did movies, too. Movies just and the movies first in everyone's yes, mind. Exactly. Yeah. More people have seen the movie probably at this point, you know, than read the book. That was a bit of a Freudian slip for sure. <laughs> now, to be clear, the book itself is divided into sub books. We are talking book one today, as I mentioned, which is a large portion of it. Book two is only two chapters. Book three is one chapter. Book four is a couple. Book five is a couple. Like it's. It's not evenly divided, so how we do the shows mm -hmm. in the future might be a little bit different. But today we are getting into the meat and potatoes of book one. And I have to say, oh. on my audio version, Mike, not just was I blessed with Joe Montaigne, it has an opening forward by Uncle Francis himself, Francis Ford Coppola. No way. That's awesome. I missed that. I do not have that. Let me ask you this. Do they, do they grace you with any like music? laced underneath any of it is the godfather theme throughout it or anything or, or audiobooks primarily just just uh you know talking and and no extra effects or anything it's not like a radio play no right? no it's not a radio play i don't recall if they have like an opening <laughs> where it's like and then sonny's member no, was no. thrusting into her tiny <laughs> no, no no not like that and, and again i i misspoke francis ford Coppola does not read uh his intro joe montana reads it but it is it is francis ford coppola writing it and it's great, actually. He he basically recounts how he was on the street and some Italian guy comes up to him and is like, hey, Mario Puzo made you. And he's like, I agree. I would not be anything today <laughs> without Mario Puzo's words. And he talks about how he read it at first because there were rumors that he might be picked to direct it and he didn't want to go into the meeting essentially i mean like i'm I'm feeling in some of this but i, I get yeah. the feeling that he didn't want to go into the meeting and say like oh i don't know what that is right he knew it was a popular book and he expected it to be a high level novel mm. like literature he wanted he was expecting literature, literature yeah <laughs> um, italo covino is a famous italian writer uh, a modernist writer i've read some of his short stories they're amazing but it's definitely high level stuff and that's who he cites that he expected it to be like. And when he first opened it, he's like, what? Almost, not these words, but it was almost like, what is this filth? It's trash. It's a trashy book. It can't, it can be very, but like, there's value in that. Francis also acknowledges that he, when he met Puzo, he just absolutely fell in love with it. We see this on the offer. Now, again, the offer kind of depicts mm -hmm. them being the same age. Francis and the same person. <laughs> yeah. Francis was young. Mario <laughs> was a lot older. Francis in in this forward is like he was like my favorite uncle. You know, 
Um, they hit it off. Oh, his uncle. The show depicts them being at a hotel, but they don't necessarily depict the casino parts, if I don't recall. Were they at a hotel? I thought they I thought they were had, a like, house, they a house. house? Yeah. Francis says like basically he he thinks casinos are the greatest places for writers to write because you know, you can get food at any time. Basically everything's around the clock. Oh, room service yeah. and shit. <laughs> and if you're bored you can always uh, gamble, right? He talks about Puzo being this this terrible gambler, but someone who loved gambling, loved talking about gambling. So he would go down to the casino. That he was always saying he was going to like work out, but never would, which we see a little bit in the show, right? Like uh, he would just be like eating all the time. But they came up with this script together in a casino in Reno. Wow! Oh, Reno. Oh my God! He also talks about The Godfather too, how they had arguments on that, and and you know we'll we'll get to that when we talk about later parts of the novel. But one of their biggest arguments was, yeah. was Fredo's role in, in Michael's betrayal, and they even talk. He even talks The Godfather Three in this forward, and he talks about how. And this is before the coda, by the way. This, this forward is written before the coda. He talks about how him and Mario did not want to call it The Godfather 3. How they always want to call it The Death of Michael Colleone. So it's just interesting. It's a, it's a nice, beautiful nice. thing that talks about the collaboration. And uh, yeah, definitely check it out. I, again, I highly recommend this audiobook. Yeah, I gotta get my hands on it. Or my ears. But I loved the way they were depicted in the offer as kind of um, like kindred spirits in a lot of ways, right? Where... It, like Puzo was sort of the older version of what Coppola would sort of eventually be, but in film and like Puzo was there, but in kind of like his corner of, of the book world, I, I guess. I don't know, but like just only, it feels like only Puzo could have like written this this way uh, after seeing how he's depicted in the offer, because at a lot of times feels like catering a lot, right? Like, he knows what would sound cool or like what would be cool to read about and stuff. And it might not necessarily be like, you know, high art or whatever, but like sometimes you just want to read about people getting shot in the fucking face. Right. Like sometimes you want to read about like how much family means to somebody at the same, in the same book. So it's just interesting how he is able to sort of still make this like so relevant, but also sensationalist. Right. Because it is that like, it's sensationalizing violence and the mafia and there'll be parts later that are graphic and, you know, like sexually explicit, shall we say, right? So it's not like he doesn't know there's a certain audience for a certain type of thing. And it's just like he was smart enough to be able to kind of find the right themes and subjects uh, to like make it work for him, you know, and like write that novel for him. So like, cause like the, the mafia is like, you know, you could get away with writing a lot of uh, edgy stuff about that, you know? And like, that's enticing because it's a very secretive world. So you're like, you could even make up a lot of shit and people will believe that it's actually true <laughs> and things. So like, I'm sure he had a, it feels like he had a fun or at least a good time uh, writing this book as, as I was rereading it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, right? Like, he knew what he was doing. He, it was a conscious effort, right? And think about how often that doesn't work, you know? It's like, I was just listening to some guys talk about Garfield this morning on this uh, comic book uh, show I watch and stuff and, on YouTube and things, and they're like, you know, Jim Davis pretty much set out to try and be, like, a phenomenon, 
Whereas you have really like Calvin and well, you have like Calvin and Hobbes, like Bill Watterson, who was like, I don't want to license any of this shit. I don't want any toys. I don't want any you know i don't want any of that stuff and then jim davis was like yeah let's do cartoons and and movies and like we'll have whatever we'll do a theme park and stuff so it's just like some people and i'm not i'm not complaining like he's a sellout like i love garfield you know it's just like it's so rare to actually be like i want to create something that's like mass consumable and everyone's gonna love i feel like puzo was like i'm gonna try and do that you know, I'm going to do my version of Garfield, <laughs> kind of, where it's like, and his version was the mafia, you know, and it's just like, that's kind of a rare thing for someone to set out to be like, I'm going to make something appealing. And then it actually like coming to fruition that way. And then Francis, who's like b- building this hippie film commune, right, who's against this, <laughs> yeah. does the same thing with the adaptation, right? It ends up becoming both a critically acclaimed film, but also arguably the most popular film of all time as well right yeah somehow he straddled that fence too where it's like it's like a blockbuster but it's like artful (laughs) (laughs) oh for sure let's just dive right into this mike um the opening is a little different and i'm gonna read it word for Mm -hmm. word i'm kidding (laughs) um (laughs) wait does yours start with a Quote from Balzac? Yes. Behind every great fortune, there is a crime. Oh, that should have been on the, that should have been the opening crawl of the movie. <laughs> should have learned something from George. I thought it was good. You're, 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 I love The Godfather. You just, you know, I'm thinking when I do my movie, I'm doing an opening crawl. <laughs> you should have one. So the movie, of course, opens with um, the Amer- Amerigo Bonacera character, the, the mortician pleading to The Godfather mm. about his case and recounting this. The book opens with the actual court case, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah. Any any notes you had on this? Uh, I like I like the movie version. You know, it's interesting how Francis is able to keep content but shift it around. You know, so like we get all of this when he comes to the dawn, and we start there. Like we skip a lot of stuff in the beginning. It's basically we get a little kind of it feels like almost a montage of of wedding invitations going out or something like that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think the movie is the kind, it's not the kind of movie to have this court scene or start, you know, I think it starts much stronger just with the close up of him talking about the incident and all that kind dude, of stuff. Dude, it's one of the great, greatest opening. I know I duded you now, but I'm sorry. It's one of the greatest no, openings. Yeah, it's cool. Dude me anytime. <laughs> it's one of the greatest openings of any film ever. It's arguably the greatest opening of a film, right? I believe in America. Yeah. Right? Such a better choice that Puzo and, and Coppola made. This is not dissing the novel, obviously, but like it's so so much stronger no. in a film to bring it up this way. Yeah, like Coppola's thinking more visually, you know, like what is gonna have more impact? How can I get across more information quicker? How can I get across like twice the information you know so you have him telling the story but then you also see how he's reacting as he's telling the story and you get everything you need to know you don't need to see him fly off the handles in court because you see him you know asking the like breaking his kind of composure while while talking to the don and everything like that so yeah I like so that. francis in that opening said what drew him into the story was that it felt like a king with three sons, and each of these sons played a different part. 
And the way at, at uh-huh. Connie's wedding, which again is one of the subsequent scenes here, or again, I'm such a film person, scenes, you know, one of the subsequent chapters here, we do meet all our sons. And I love how Puzo describes them because they're not what we get in Hollywood, right? Like, first, with, with let's, let's start with Sonny. And most of the Colleon men have cherub-like faces. And, and they're mm-hmm. almost brutish. Like, they're not, like, pretty. I don't want to say James Conner's pretty, but, you know, he's got Hollywood looks. He, he's yeah, a good-looking yeah, yeah. guy. That is not how they're described in the novel. Can, can, can I read a couple of the scriptures real quick? Especially Sonny? Sure, go ahead. Sonny Corleone had strength. He had courage. He was generous, and his heart was admitted to be as big as his organ. Yeah, he did not have his father's humility, but instead a quick, hot temper that led him into errors of judgment. But, you know, right there, Sonny is first described as uh, having a big dick. <laughs> like That's the first thing you learn about And, and if you're not familiar with the book and you're listening today, Mike is not being perverse. Like, Mario Puzo has an obsession with Sonny's penis. It's a big part of this book, no pun intended. <laughs> pun that intend. Intend that pun to happen. <laughs> we do see in the movie um, his little tryst with Lucy Mancini, who ends up being you know, a key character in the third film, believe it or not, right? But a, a huge part of this book. But she, yeah, and it's not featured in book one, but she ends up being a major character. But even here, they talk about more how um, she was a maid of honor. He he was the the best man, and they were flirting here and there, and, and that like this was more of a planned thing. And Sonny goes up, and mm-hmm. they they have sex. And the way he describes the sex is like, it's nuts. It's very graphic. Yeah, Lucy. So can I just read a go quick ahead, go passage ahead, here? Okay. Lucy Mancini lifted her pink gown off the floor and ran up the steps. Sonny Corleone's heavy cupid face, redly obscene with whiny lust, frightened her, but she had teased him for the past week to just this end. In her two college love affairs, she had felt nothing, and neither of them lasted more more than a week. Quarreling, her second lover had mumbled something about her being too big down there. Lucy had understood, and for the rest of the school term, had refused to go on any dates. So, like, that's one reason she's like, uh, when I saw that pole of Sonny's for the first time and realized he was going to stick it in me, I yelled bloody murder. <laughs> like, it's crazy. After the first year, my insides felt all mushy as macaroni boiled for an hour. Like, <laughs> it's just wild that, like, it's introduced in book one, but, like, that becomes, like, a big part of the book. It's going to get crazy <laughs> later. But for now, just remember people, Lisa Mancini, key character here here's something about fredo that struck me in the book fredo is the most different of all the brothers and please please, by all means read it but i just want to introduce him as yes he is the you know uh, least intelligent of the brothers yes he is least capable uh it's very clear he's not going to take over the family though he has a role in the family right but to me he was depicted as almost brutish frankenstein's monster like right they say he's he's a big guy people are intimidated by him but they don't know that he's almost incapable of fighting right that is not the fredo we get in the films there's a word i feel like puzo sort of dancing around when trying to describe fredo and it's kind of like he's sort of slow it seems like fredo's like missing a few cards in his deck right like here's how they introduce him uh dutiful loyal and always at the service of his father living with his parents at age 30 
He was short and burly. He's not short and burly in the movie at all. Not handsome, but with the same Cupid head of the family, the curly helmet of hair over the round face and sensual bow shaped lips. Like he's not that at all in the movie. He's he's like a croon. He's like lean, thin, like sharp looking, like kind of a suave dude, like a ladies man, like very confident in that sense. Here, listen to this. Despite all these virtues, he did not have that personal magnetism, that animal force so necessary for a leader of men. And he too was not expected to inherit the family business. Like they don't expect him to inherit the business in the movie either, but he is not like- In a different way, yeah. Missing a step, you know? Like if Fredo went down to the bar, like down the block from me, right? Like he'd be talking to everybody there. Like they would love him. Like the Fredo in the movie, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Like when he went home, they're like they would see him as lesser than. But when he's not among the mafioso family, he comes alive. He comes alive. Like people actually really (laughs) like him. That's why this depiction of Fredo was so different. I actually like the maybe because I know the movie better. um, I actually like the movie depiction better, and it might be uh, John Cazale who you know we're going to definitely cover that documentary. He is just so good, and he plays this character with, like, I don't know, we see more of it in the second film, but he plays this character with such a, I don't know, a vulnerability, right? There's a tragedy to to Fredo in that way that, like, you can't really put your finger on. It's like, oh, he's got everything, and and like or, like, everything is there for him, but he can't quite figure out how to use it or make it work right you know it's like you could have any woman and then you have this woman who hates your guts and uses you and like walks all over you and all you know it's like that kind of situation you know it's like fredo pick out any car you want and he'll pick like the shittiest car like on the line. he's like but i want that one. <laughs> i don't know and then of course there's michael oh this this is crazy what's crazy go ahead the way he's the way he's described like immediate like the way that he is portrayed like like, I know the book wants it to be like for you not to think that Michael has the ability to kind of like step up and like be the head of the family or something. But I was surprised about how much they kind of like dress him down in the book. It says, OK, so like he didn't have the heavy Cupid shaped face of the other children. Right. So like immediately that's like, oh, he's not as attractive. His jet black hair was straight rather than curly. So he's like the he's like already sort of like this this one thing is not like the other. Not to cut you off, Mike, but I don't think Cupid face mm-hmm. means attractive. I think it means Yeah, uh, I, I take it to mean more sort of like younger look like still young looking and, and like uh full of life and like lo- you know, like healthy. I, I think Cupid face means kind of like a chubby face like it's sort of like a roundish face well yeah i just felt it to mean like um someone who looked healthier or like i don't know something like that uh as opposed to the way michael is gonna just be described i don't know but but i think that that's the beauty of a book right like you and i if we're not picturing al pacino could could picture two different things because i actually heard this interpretation that you're going to say and thought he was the more handsome brother but continue well it's not he might be it's just interesting in how he is perceived like i'm assuming this is how the rest of the family sees him so like his skin was a clear olive brown that would have been called beautiful in a girl (laughs) yeah he was handsome in a delicate way indeed there had been a time when the don had worried about his youngest son's masculinity right so like there's this thing is like 
they were scared he might be gay. You know, like they're these like they're scared that he might not be seen as a man or all this stuff, right? Like the Don was honestly worried about like his manliness, his his manhood, his like masculine. You know, it's like I, I kind of was sort of taken aback, but I didn't expect to. I didn't remember that. Like I don't know the way I took that was like they're they're trying to picture him as weak, you know, and they're doing that by like saying he's not as much a man as the other brothers or something like that. I don't know. But then he goes to war. So like everybody's worries about him are completely put to rest. Yeah, no, for sure. The one difference I'll say that sort of counters that is that in the movie, it's a little bit more clear that the Don, even though he respected Michael eventually, and he, and he believes he's smart, he never wanted that life for him um in the movie because remember he's like i i wanted you to be senator corleone governor corleone yeah but in the novel here a couple times it says that there are people in the family including including the don who think that michael might be the one to take over when we watch the movie we sort of know sonny's a hothead but we just assume he's going to be the don because he's the oldest right and he's taking command of a room but in the book, it's made clear that, like, a lot more people have reservations about Sonny. Like, I feel like in the movie, we start to get reservations about Sonny once we see him in action. Yeah, but I also thought, like, once once he's in charge, I was like, he's not as hot-headed as he felt in the Correct. film. Like, he feels way more level-headed once he gets the seat. And, he, and, you, and they constantly have, like, these aside, these things where he's like... He realized he had to like check his temper and like do this and think of the dot, you know, and like not basically saying like he couldn't be himself at this moment and he had to like control himself. And I was surprised by the amount of self-control the the version of Sonny in the book actually had. And it's great in the moment when Michael's sort of like involved in the plotting and planning and they do this thing in the book where they kind of run the bases and they're like cut to tom and tom has this look on his face where he's like there's the michael we were all waiting for and like Sonny will laugh and he's like i'm not laughing because of what you said i'm laughing because like this was inevitable i knew you were gonna come out of your shell at some point you know like it's like everyone's just waiting for this like epiphany to or something to happen to michael for him to be like i'm in you know and like you could feel it in the book of all them wanting him to join almost right like i got the sense that you're just like you know you belong here, you know, and they, they say stuff like, don't give him anything to do. He's a civilian, this and that and the other. But ultimately, like he pulls the trigger, you know, so they let him do it. You know, they know he can do it. They're sort of like waiting for him to step up. It's yeah, the Michael in the movie is like, I want to help. I want to help. Right. And they're like not letting him help at times. And the Michael in the book is like, they're making me help. They're making me do these things. And they're the ones sort of like, yeah, Mikey's Mikey's joining the family. So it's a little, it's a little yeah. bit reversed that way. So it's interesting. I don't think one's better or worse. It's just a little bit different. There's also more when Michael, like he has a, he has almost a moment 
that Fredo has in the second movie where Fredo like loses his temper. He's like, I'm smart. I, I can do things, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm this and that. Michael has a moment where like he explodes at Sonny and he stands up and he yells at Sonny. He's like, you lousy bastard. He's my father. How am I? I'm not supposed to help him. I can help. I don't have to go out and kill people, but I can help. Like, stop treating me like a kid brother. I was in the war. I got shot. Remember, I killed Japs. What the hell do you think I'll do when, when, when you knock somebody off? Faint? You know, he's like, we don't have that in the movie at all. Like, I literally picture him like, like, I could do this. Like, I've shot people. Like, I've literally killed people. Like, I went to war. Like, what, what the hell? Like, you're just playing war. Like, I've been to war. Like, let's go to war. You know, like, it's a it's a very more sort of like intense uh, it's interesting, but I think they didn't include it in the movie because it's just m- more interesting and natural to see Michael's slow progression into evil rather than the outburst early on. Well, for for a movie too, like I think that's where Francis, as like a remarkable director, comes into play because like he somehow gets it portrayed by just being like a look on a face. For a lot of it you know it's just it's written all over his face that like you know what he wants to do you know how he's like feeling at that time and stuff so you don't need him to to jump up and scream you just do like a like a very long slow zoom into his face as he's like it's almost like his composure that makes him more deadly in the movie like that's what's really chilling about the character in the movie in the book it kind of feels like this guy who starts like getting more and more intense but in the movie he's like smoldering you know, and he's stoic and it's just like super unpredictable feeling. I like both, but like, yeah, I don't think this would have been better. You know, I'm not saying like we need this scene. I'm just saying like, it's just kind of cool how you can portray the same character so differently. hundred percent, hundred percent. So Mike, I do want to talk about the fourth Colleone brother. Do you, do you mind if we, we talk about him? Are you talking about uh, Hagen or Fontaine? Because there's five apparently. <laughs> I was talking about Hagen. But you are so right. Fontaine is the fifth. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Hagen quickly and then get into Johnny Fontaine. I think Tom Hagen is pretty faithful in the like movie to book. I feel like this is just we get more of the Tom Hagen background story, which I love, right? We know we know yeah. from Godfather 2 that he was found on the street. We, we hear it mentioned, I believe, in the first Godfather. But we get the story here, right? How his father was an alcoholic how his mother died, how he was blind, and they they took him in. But how the Don cared for him, but never treated him like a son for good and for bad. He was more like a, he was more like a war. Yes. Right? It was more like a Robin, kind of Batman Robin situation. For sure. (laughs) It's like always like sort of like an emotional arm's length from this kid. And I love, I love this little story of, of how he you know, wanted to go to law school. The Don put him in law school, never pressured him to be a family, the family lawyer, but he wanted to do it just to basically, you know, cause he really felt like the Don was his father and wanted to just, you know, support him and support the family. These were his brothers now. And he knows he can't, he can't be a Don. He knows he's not Sicilian, but to rise to the rank of consigliere, consigliere, right. is a huge deal. And it's a huge deal in the movie. But it's an even bigger deal in the books, the fact that he's not Sicilian. Like, it's mentioned from time to time in the movie. But in the book, it's like, whoa. In the book, like, there's hints that it might even be why all this shit is popping off. Yeah. You know, it's like why 
tensions are starting to come to the surface, why people think they can start making moves that they couldn't before, it's because this guy isn't 100% necessarily in the with the rest of the community, you know? Like I that I don't get that from from the movie, but I do see some of that in the, there's a lot of resentment against Hagen in the in the book it feels. Yeah, in the movie it's more like, oh, he kind of made a progressive choice, but I get it. He raised this kid. He's very smart. They make digs at him, but it seems more like a teasing thing. It doesn't seem like what you said. Like, this is a catalyst for them not not believing that the Don's on top of his game anymore. Yeah, it's like a tell of him slipping mentally. Which is interesting. I do love, and I know I talk about this a lot, or I have, but I, but I do love the seeds are sort of planted for that plot that we were supposed to get in Godfather 3. Duvall did not want to come back for Godfather mm-hmm. 3. He, but he wanted he was going to take over or something. Yeah, so so Tom, the original plot of Godfather 3, once again to remind, remind the nieces and the nephews out there, Tom was going to come back in Godfather 3, and it was going to be sort of a Michael versus Tom thing. Tom had felt like he'd worked very hard, and that he'd earned taking over the family, and Michael, who was bowing out, was going to deny him and try to, I believe, pass it off to... Uh, the Mancini character, right? And it was going to be Tom, like, what the fuck? Which, again, that's an awesome movie because, like, I think the audience yeah. would be like, Tom does deserve it, even though he's not Italian. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, I wish we saw that movie. We, we can rehash that when we talk Godfather 3, Dakota, and all those other things. But um, we get seeds of that here because there are lines of, like, you know, he knows he'll never be Don, but you can tell in him he's burning, like, like he has the ambition... He has the drive, and part of him knows that, like, if he was a true brother, if he was truly raised by him, he probably would be the smartest one. He probably would be the favorite to be Don, but he could never be that because he's not Sicilian. He's not truly blood. Yeah. There's something Shakespearean in that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny, too, because in the book, he doesn't have the strength physically either. Whereas, like, Robert Duvall is kind of a, like, imposing character, like, like, guy, right? You smell that? (laughs) Exactly. Like, I think of him as, like, you know, even though he's playing a lawyer, a consigliere in The Godfather, I never think of him as, like, a whim. Technically a nice a nice guy. No. You know, I don't think anybody in that family or in that movie is like a nice person you can trust. Like ultimately deep down, like Tom's just as evil as the rest of them. You know? Like I love the scene in the movie which we get and we actually get the car bomb in this, or like someone throws the bomb over the fence into the courtyard of the compound at the end of book one here. But like in the movie, Tom is so nonchalant about it. When Kay's like, what happened to that car? He's like, oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about that. (laughs) That's not your business. You know, he's like, he's so he's complicit with murder. Uh, And I forget that from time to time, because like the movie is directed in such a way that you're like immediately ingratiated into this family with the wedding and stuff. But the book is is different, you know, because you it's just you in the book and you're the director of the book. So you kind of give the uh the direction to the you know what you're reading in your mind and so it comes across quite differently so let's quickly talk the fifth son that you referred him as and you're not wrong johnny (laughs) fontaine the godson so of course we we see johnny fontaine in the film but the book johnny fontaine and we knew this i mean even if you hadn't read it like this has been hearsay and legends about this film right a huge character in this book he's on 
page two, right right after the Amerigo scenario thing, he he's introduced before the Blood Brothers. It's crazy. It's crazy. In a garishly decorated Los Angeles hotel suite, Johnny Fontaine was as jealously drunk as any ordinary husband. And then it goes on to talk about how his wife is leaving him. And it's like, where the hell are you going, Johnny asked. Out fucking, she said. It's like, what is going on? By the way, I'm at, imagine Jim Montaigne saying that. Oh, where are you going? Out fucking, she <laughs> said. Oh, she had misjudged his drunkenness. Yeah, he, he goes and he like beats his wife. It's like crazy, like what is going on in this book if you're not if you're not um familiar with like what's going on in this book. Like you I feel I feel like there should be like a primer for people who've only seen the movie to be like, get ready for some crazy shit that you're never gonna expect. That's what we're here for. I I think most of our listeners are probably movie watchers and not necessarily book readers. Um, not that they don't read books. You know what I mean? We only cater to the illiterate here on Podcast <laughs> Central. <laughs> but like, just another warning, there's a lot of violence against women in this book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's not great. Because you know why it sucks is because at times it's depicted as like, that's just what you got to do. Like, you got, you know, you got to hit them once in a while. And it's like, it sucks that there isn't a single character like not even Michael, you know, <laughs> like I'm sure Michael's like, oh, I'll put K in line and like just give her one of these or whatever. Like it just but that's again, you're, these aren't good people, you know, quickly on Fontaine, because I want to talk about the Dom. Yeah, we'll get more of him in later books. Like um, we we know from the offer and we know from just like studying the Godfather that or supposedly hearsay is that the part in the film was downplayed because it was based on Sinatra and they didn't want Sinatra going after them. Sinatra was not happy about about that. So they really um, just made it that Al Martino part. We see him twice. We see him at the beginning. See him at the end. The Don solves this problem. And we see him at the end, right? Uh, quickly on the Don, because we'll talk about him throughout. But he's definitely, I don't know if it was just the reading of it by Joe Montagna, but he's definitely depicted as a little bit more cold and sinister He's like a he's like a boogeyman almost, I feel like because you get a lot of people's impressions of him, you know, so like that's how I felt in the book. So it's like each character has their like sort of like perspective on the Don and they're all like scared shitless of him. you know. <laughs> but yet he's also known as a guy who will do anything for you. Right. So it's like such a contradiction of like, OK, so like apparently this is the nicest guy ever, but he's also the coldest meanest son of a bitch also so it's like how do you navigate that negotiation <laughs> you know how do you how do you talk to that type of person it must be very intimidating yeah and i get that more like that from the book that he's sort of more unpredictable than like in the movie he seems very kind of like set almost like set in a way in a certain not in not in his way, but in a certain way. Whereas like in the book, it just kind of, he kind of feels like, uh, I don't know what I feel like doing right now. You know, I, it'll come to me kind of thing. In the, yeah. In the movie, like, even though he's a bad guy, he's a leader of a mafia family. He's depicted as more of a character with like a, such a strong moral backbone that even his bad things seem like they have a positive purpose behind them. I'm thinking of even the second film, when he first helps the woman out who wants to keep the dog in the apartment, right? Oh, yes. It's such a silly thing. And he muscles the guy, but like, I think we're all rooting for that. We all want that dog to live in that apartment, right? 
Yeah. Um, it's things like that. In this film, you're right. Like, at one point, he's like, oh, you're such a coward, Johnny. You didn't punch your wife in the face? It's crazy. <laughs> no, it's like, what? You know, like, you're almost not rooting for the Don in certain scenes. And I don't think any time when you're watching the Godfather film, you're you're rooting against the Marlon Brando character. You know, like, that's not the case. So, um, very interesting depiction here. I, I also feel like he's in the book less. Very interesting how uh, his assassination attempt is depicted out of sequence in the novel. Oh, yeah. Whereas in the movie, everything is chronological. Like, that's really, I thought that was like kind of the best part of the book so far, like that type of writing. He doesn't do it enough, I feel like he can, he can write out of sequence really well. So I wish he did that a bit more. He does it a little bit here and there, but that's why I'm interested to see how the, finale from the movie is is depicted in the novel because there's all that cross cutting in the film during the uh ceremony at the end there yeah i just feel like i just i don't know i just feel like the you know we see the don when he's on screen more so we can maybe get a little more used to him and read him a little better but it just feels like he's more of a boogeyman in this book where it's just like this old imposing force that's in charge and he is like the staple, right? Like he is the institution. He is like, you know, what it all represents at this point in time. Uh, and then it's all about the shift. Everything's about to change now. Yeah, I don't know. I just got the sense that like he represents dread for a lot of these people, you know, even though he could do whatever you want for him, like no one wants to be owing this guy anything in the book. You know, it just feels like, the guy who asked for help, he's like, he's like scared shitless of when he's like, oh no, the, the undertaker He's like, the Don's going to come to my place one day and he's going to have like five or six bodies and he's going to force me to bury like people shot in the face. And it's like, no, what ends up actually happening later is like, he brings his son there, you know, he brings his son to the undertaker and stuff. So I, I don't know. I just got the sense in the book that people are way more scared of him. And in the movie, it's like, maybe because like I said, like we, we get to watch him more, like literally see him and see what Brando's doing with the character, it's less imposing somehow. Like it's, he comes across sort of more grandfatherly or something or like more, I don't know. You know, you know what I'm trying to get at though? Yeah. And how about the setup at the beginning? Grandfatherly, great, great word for it. Great word for it, by the way. But um, how about the setup at the beginning more with uh, the conversations that are taking place, the favors um, that they're asking the Don. It, it's set up yes. a little bit different. Um, first of all, Enzo the Baker. Like, when we see that conversation, it's before the uh, funeral guy's conversation, right? And, sorry, a a Enzo's the one marrying the daughter, but we get more about the story, and it seems like he's basically, like, in the book, just banging uh, the baker's daughter because he wants to stay in america like she's depicted as not being pretty and it's like not like necessarily like a nice thing in the movie it's more like let me do this favor for my friend of course i'll get him some citizenship right i kind of like the movie version better like it's so much more sinister in the book well the book is like a whole scam right like he was an italian soldier captured by the american army and sent to the United States as a prisoner of war. Then he was given parole to help the war effort. Uh, and then he, and then it says here, a pure and honorable love had sprung up between honest Enzo and his sheltered Catherine, uh, Catherine. But now that the war was ended, the poor lad would be repatriated to Italy. 
and so they would uh, have to break up and stuff. So like it, it's total like it's totally different. Like this is whole a, a matter of circumstance. Like this is a guy who who just got like sent to America. At, you know, he was one day he was in Italy. There's a war broke out. He was taken, captured, brought to America, let free fell in love with this girl and now they're going to send him back home like it's yeah, but, so but there is elements of that in the movie i think look it says that line but then when it depicts what's actually happening it, it like it's very sexual like you know enzo works in the bakery and like the the daughter's depicted as like ugly and like fat and and she like rubs her ass on him and like there again there's implications there that like so he doesn't get sent back that's why they're together right it's a bit of convenience i could see yeah but, you know, it's, it seems to me like what, I feel like I see this situation from time to time where it's like it's a it's a marriage of like convenience for both of them. Right. <laughs> like he gets to stay in the country. She gets a little play, you know, like they both work. There's, Puzo says basically like no man will touch her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not great. I mean, a couple other notes um, for these earlier conversations, the conversations with the Don that are so famous in the movie, because they've opened with the courtroom, they're more building to, instead of opening with the the funeral director's conversation, they're more building to that as like the crescendo. It, it's depicted pretty similarly as it is in the movie, but but instead it's like supposed to be this bookend from that opening scene to what what the yeah. Don ends up saying, and again, it's, it's a Chekhov's. It's in the movie. It, it's in the book, but it's a Chekhov's gun here. We know it's gonna come back later. We actually see the retribution on those guys later for that guy's daughter. Oh yeah, Amerigo's daughter. Yeah. Like that's in the book. Like those guys get put in a hospital by some of these by some of the Godfather's like guys. Like there's a scene in the book. Like I don't think it should have been in the movie, but it's kind of cool that there's that scene in the book where at least like those guys get their comeuppance you know what i'm saying like puzo's not a hundred percent against women in this movie no they get their comeuppance and it's also another bigger character in the book oh and yeah that's paulie gatto who does it we see paulie gatto in the movie right he's talking about the purse he's like mama mia how much money's in that purse and we see him get killed but in this it's very clear He's an up-and-comer in the family. Um, he's someone who yeah. people think is going to be like a capo one day. He's a pretty big deal. He's just you know putting in his time. And, of course, it's a little bit more obvious in the book that he actually did betray the Dawn. In the movie, it's sort of like ambiguous. Oh, yeah. I think they make it crystal clear by the time he's killed that he was a traitor, like he was the spy. Also, not in the book. Leave the gun, take the cannolis. <laughs> no, the, <laughs> that line is not in the book. The, the actor who played Clemenza came up with that line. That's why he thought he was like so funny, and he get paid extra for the se- for the <laughs> second movie. But um, we'll talk about that when we talk about Godfather Two for sure. There's actually a scene that I wish was in the movie. Which one? When they go visit Genko. So, Mike, this is something I'm actually excited to do. Uh, haven't talked deleted scenes here and we'll we'll do another deep dive of them but my wife was going through stuff probably trying to you know declutter the apartment and she was like brian you realize you have not just this copy of the godfather the godfather dvd collection but you also have the godfather the coppola restoration 
do you need both? Of course you do. I was like, do you know what show I host? <laughs> of course I need both. It's embarrassing that I only have these. What is this Sophie's choice that she presents to you? <laughs> <laughs> but of course, like the Godfather DVD collection, this one is the reason that I'm on this podcast today. This changed my life in terms of interpretation of films, in terms of my love for Coppola and the Godfather, because the bonus materials on this, this disc right here, which is similar to this yep. one. There are some differences, by the way. But this bonus materials right here, I dove every second, every inch of this thing. I loved it so much when it came out. I forgot what year it came out. I was pretty young. I just remember watching it again and again and again. And I remember when I was reading the book, I remembered the deleted scenes. And I was like, oh, oh. wow. So like the original cut, which, by the way, there's like the Godfather saga. There's like longer cuts of the Godfather yeah, yeah. that do include some of these scenes. The original cut was much more faithful to these scenes. So you mentioned hmm. you mentioned Jenko. Jenko is actually very much depicted in the original cut cut of the film. Really? Oh. So, Mike, I'm gonna I, we're doing this live on air because I do want to play it. Um, I'm gonna send you two clips here, and we're we're just gonna watch it live. Uh, there's nothing else I'd like to go to my daughter's wedding. Uh, the hospital called. Uh, Consigliere Jenko. He's not going to last out the night. Santino, go tell your brothers that I want them to come with me to visit Jenko, pay their respects. Tell Fredo to drive the big car and ask Johnny to come. Papa, Michael. All my sons. That's almost exactly like the book. But that's just like a, that's just like the tale of, a, that's easy to omit, you know what I'm saying? If they're trying to find some some space exactly right it's at the end of a scene you know and it's like it's setting something up they could easily just never go to but that's exactly like the book in terms of like that's how the meeting ends in the book but but mm -hmm. we do go there because check out this scene we actually are at jenko's hospital bed Whenever, uh, American girlfriend get back in the city, all right? tom said he'd take her in what are all these christmas ribbons for bravery what miracles they do for strangers just a minute Michael. i want to talk to you but what are your plans when you get out finish school that's fine i approve of that michael you never come to me as a son should you know that don't you but when you finish school i want you to come and talk to me because i have plans for you you understand Jenko, I brought all my boys to pay their respects. Even Johnny from Hollywood. Godfather. Godfather. It is your daughter's wedding day. You cannot refuse me. Cure me. You have the power. Jenko, I have no such power. But don't be afraid of that. It has been arranged then? 
to blaspheme. Zionists. But you, you need your old consigliere. Who will replace me? Stay, stay with me, Godfather. Help me to meet death. If he sees you, he'll be frightened and leave me in peace. You can say a word, pull a few strings, eh? Stay with me, Godfather. Don't betray me. I'm wondering if they shot everything and we're just like we don't need this we don't need this like because this feels superfluous in a lot of ways like i actually almost wonder if some of this was omitted just because of how it was shot like it's just it's killing the rhythm yeah i agree with that mike i think that you hit the nail on the head they probably shot a lot of these things and then remember that in the offer it was depicted that that dude peter bart i think his name was like did a recut of it like some of this is Mm. good for the book but it sort of ruins the amazing pace of the film right like it's great to just see now we get tom in la like instead of this part you know what the hardest thing is brian and i think the number one reason they might have omitted this is because you never want to introduce a character in a movie like this who feels super important and they're just about to die why do i need to feel and you know it's just I understand it in the book because it it lends more sort of credence to their history and what they've been through and all that. What a consigliere, like he's been by his side this whole time. It's basically his brother dying, but like that's not coming across in the film at all. You know, they almost should have saved this for like Godfather part two somehow. Jenko in the books is such a big deal, but like in the movie, it's just like a sort of name that gets mentioned here. They're the, you know, the, the final cut of the movie. So this, this is interesting, but again, it is so more, book like in the book it serves a great purpose because it shows that mm-hmm. even his best friend sees the dawn as almost like a god right he asks him to stop yes. death i know he's like right. a dying man losing it sort of but still no like it's an interesting scene like i could see why they shot it and wanted to use it but this should almost come later in the movie like you know like before the dawn shot but after tom gets back from la like pop it in there if you can somewhere it's 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 interesting too it's so much it's so much smoother without it it really is yeah i think that was what it comes down to you know and we did you're right we saw a lot of um arguing over the editing on the offer you know like people were losing their minds over touching the print and things like that and so i mean and look the the godfather the movie itself People, it's not that it's that long, but people feel like it's a slow movie to begin with, even though I, I don't really feel it, but I could see how people think that. That just feels like a tangent we don't need to explore at this point. It's interesting because, like, the other thing I noticed from this scene is the Michael part. You're right. Like, mm-hmm. how the Don and Michael sort of have an argument. But in the film, in the sorry, in the final version of the film, it's just so much more effective. So it's it's effective, like how his brothers are sort of teasing him about his military career. Oh, the war hero, all this, right? But when we get that scene in The Godfather 2, the ending scene, where it's a flashback, 
Oh, the Thanksgiving dinner scene where there where he says he enlisted. Yeah, right. Like in this full story, like we get that there. We get that whole. And I know they didn't know they were gonna make that at that point, but we get the whole like uh, Tom, like your father pulled a lot of strings for you, Michael, and you're still gonna go to war. It's just more effective that way. I don't need the Don teasing Michael in the film. Not teasing, but like angry at Michael in the film, and then later, like, oh, you know, you're gonna be my protege. I like how Michael is sort of this like background character that we feel like we can relate to that suddenly becomes the main character. I forgot what that's called, yeah. but I think it's just more effective in the film. It doesn't mean the book is bad. I love it in the book. Yeah. I love the details in the book, but for a film, it's better to have Michael slowly creep his way in and become the main character. Did I totally agree? Like, I really like in the movie how Michael and the Don, like, barely spend any time together you know and like especially early on in that movie um before he shot he they really don't have any face time together and it gives it's like it says so much more than if the don just berated his son for not doing something he felt like you know what i'm saying if it, it says so much more than him making fun of his medals to actually not show them together for the you know for the start of the movie it's like that distance is visible that distance is palpable that way more you know it's so much more impactful than them having a conversation being like you know i don't approve of you and well well i don't need you to approve of me and all this like they just don't talk like i like i didn't really pick up on that so much but like we're kind of exploring how different these characters are or how there are some differences between them and I think that's a difference between the Don in the book and the Don in the movie and the Mike in the book and the Mike in the movie. And I think this scene the, shows exactly why that is a book scene and does not really work as a movie scene. Couldn't agree more. Just to piggyback on that, um, when the Don wakes up sort of and realize, after he shot and realizes, obviously mm-hmm. Sonny's dead and stuff, but realizes that Michael was the one that killed the Turk and just the impact of that, like really him, you know? Right. And then like the conversation he has later, Oh, I thought you'd be governor, Senator, that that conversation I already cited. Right. It almost feels like in the movie that, well, here we are and the cream rose to the top, but I didn't expect this. And now that Michael's Mm -hmm. in charge, yes, I'm going to be supportive. He's proven himself and he's done that. But Previous to this, I wanted him as far away from me as possible so that he could be his own man. And the, and the book is very different when it comes to that. Yeah, I, I love it, though. I love that. I mean, you know, that they could sort of be so different and yet so valid, too. You know, I don't know. Like, they're really at this point, I don't think there's a definitive version. You just sort of have to watch the movie, read the book, and then just kind of like, meld them together in some way you know it almost feels like you get the full story that way you know it's like an alternate reality version of like what's going on or something oh i highly recommend the book we actually get to see jenko and there's this whole sequence in the book i'm saying um and there's this whole sequence about him we talk about him jenko's sort of this mysterious character if you just know the movies 
from the Godfather series, right? Like, you hear about him, how he was this great consigliere. You see him in Godfather 2. Often people confuse right. him for Tessio in Godfather 2. Like, the actors sort of look similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, Vagoda. <laughs> yeah, because you see both a young Tessio and a young Jenko. Um, Jenko, of course, we learn in Godfather 2, like, his family goes way back with the Colleones. They give Vito a shot in America for the first time. Yeah, kind of like provide him the sanctuary and a job and all that kind of stuff. For sure, for sure. So, like, we are coming in at a time in Godfather Part 1 where Jenko is now out of the picture, but he has been the number two man to Vito, building up this empire to get to where it's been. So... I, as a kid, when I first watched The Godfather, not a kid, but you know what I mean, (laughs) I was very curious about this character. One thing that like the Genko stuff adds, I think, for the book is uh, something you don't really get a sense of until The Godfather 2 is like this real kind of like end of an era. I mean, the Turk brings it up, you know, he says like The Godfather's over, you know, it's the new generation. But like, I really get the sense of that in the novel that like these guys are are done you know the don and Genk like it's time to retire in that you know what i mean it's like and there's a there's more anxiety for me reading the book because of that like the movie for some reason it comes across but it doesn't feel as front and center for me as it does in the novel and i think it's because like that that stuff works better in the book like we discussed like you know those deleted scenes really slowed down the pace of the film because we want it to move a little more brisk uh, and I personally think Coppola does a better job of giving more information when people are speaking less in The Godfather. And so those scenes were very talky and so forth. So, like, yeah, those are just a couple extra thoughts I had uh, about that material. For sure, for sure, because I think it's just so effective um, in the movie when The Godfather pulls Tom aside and essentially is like, you're heading to L.A. tonight to solve this Johnny Fontaine thing. Yeah, he gets right to it. The Jenko thing, you're right, like sort of distracts a, a bit. We didn't really, not that it's bad, but we just didn't need it. And instead you're seeing how effective this guy is at solving a problem that in the book and in the movie, everyone's like, how the hell are you going to solve this? Like this this is one of those impossible things. But the Don never breaks his word. Yeah, I like that in the movie is that like he kind of gets to everything immediately. Like, you know, he's like, Oh, there's a task in front of me. I got to do that. And then I'll get to the next task. Like, he just does things in order. I kind of, it's very efficient. <laughs> it's efficient godfathering. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right, Mike. So in this scene at the wedding, the famous scene where all the suitors or all the favor askers are asking the Don for a favor on the day of his daughter's wedding, we meet as we do in the movie, we meet Luca Brasi. But yes. he's a very different Luca Brasi in the book as he is in the film. Well, I I think it's quite interesting. I think he's the same. It's just that we get to read the minds of what everyone else thinks about him. Okay? So in the movie, he comes across as a bit slow, but also lethal, right? Like, you don't want to fuck with this guy just be nice to him and, you know, let him do his thing. But in the book, you get the sense that everyone's like just scared shitless of him. But I don't get the sense that he feels that from people. You know, he feels like the same to me as the character. It's just crazy when you read that, like the Don 
is scared of this guy. Yeah, even the Don. Like the Don Corleone is scared of this guy. And then Luca Brazzi comes in and he's like, I, I devote myself to you, you know? And it's like, wow, this is this is an interesting uh, internal like stuff that we're getting to find out. Yeah, so, I mean, you might be right about that. We are learning more here. Of course, uh, we learned in the offer, and if you just know the background of the film, Luca Brasi was played by former wrestler turned actual mafia person, Lenny Montana. I don't know. Have mm. we discussed that? Have you looked into this actor, Lenny Montana? No, no, no. But I wonder if this is where Lou Albano and his original tag team partner <laughs> got the idea for their first uh, gimmicks as uh, wrestlers. What were they? The Sicilians, I believe. The Sicilians. I sent you that picture the other day. Dude, I've been dying to figure out a way to bring that up. <laughs> But, Mike, you got to look into this guy, Lou Montana's background. Yes, okay. the rumors are true. At the time, he was a, uh enforcer for one of the five families. I think the Colombo family, of course, because that's, you know, the Colombo family is so much featured in the offer. But previous to that, he was actually a really successful professional wrestler, specifically out in Kansas City. In the NWA territories there, like in the 40s, he wrestled as, as the wow. zebra, zebra Kid. He won championships. Oh, man, look at him. I wouldn't want to face off against him in the ring. He fought guys like Eddie Graham, Vern Gagne, Eddie Holy Sharkey, crap. like legends of the time. Gene Kaninsky, if you know anything about like wrestlers of that era, he was one of the guys. Herb Freeman, Ray Gunkel. <laughs> wow. But then, you know, he, I guess he was down on his luck, came back to New York, became an enforcer here. I've watched also a lot of That's a crazy. lot of like background um, interviews on The Godfather, just like for fun, obviously, because I'm interested in the subject. And the actors confirm it. Like this guy, he wasn't a professional actor. Again, played by Lou Ferrigno, if you remember in the offer. And when he did this scene, he was actually super nervous. And yes. that scene where he's reading his lines was actually him. Sorry, that scene where he's reading like the lines of what he's going to say to the Don. Like rehearsing at the wedding. Where, yeah. It was actually him rehearsing. Copley used it. They cut <laughs> it in. So, yeah, that's why in the film, that's one of the reasons where he seems more just like sort of like a lum- like a strong but like lumbering goon. The other reason is that he's not featured as much as he is in the book. So I've read ahead. Right. I, I don't want to spoil it. Luca Brazzi is a monster. We'll put it that way. Oh, oh yes, yes. I yes, mean, yes. I, I know again. You've read the book. That's why I don't say he's like. I think he's the same character. We learn more about Luca Brazzi, but like I got sort of that image of him from the movie too. I got the image that like he is the guy you send. He's like the A bomb. Like you just point him in a direction or something, and you set him loose, and he takes care of whatever's in his path. Just gets like torched, you know. But yeah, they do go further in the book to kind of depict his like brutality and ruthless because we don't see any of that in the movie you know and i think that's why i feel like in the movie the point is is taken for me like it comes across that this guy is is lethal because we don't see him perform any murders or anything like that uh and then when he does get taken out in the movie it's like holy shit like we just lost like a huge part of our arsenal here no, for sure, for sure. So just wanted to mention that. I think Tom in L.A. is mm. pretty similar, except obviously we're getting a little bit more into Tom's mind and stuff. There is one key difference mm-hmm. that that I, I saw. Okay. Now, they shot this key difference, but in, in a different way, if you will. 
So, uh, Mike, I want you to watch these two clips in succession. Okay. Unaccustomed as I am to public drinking, <laughs> I mean speaking, of course. Janie, seriously, we took some time off from the picture because we all want to wish you a happy birthday. Now, Janie and everybody, we have a big surprise for you. In order to show how much Waltz International thinks of you, we have brought you a special birthday present. Oh, isn't he darling? I'm I'm amazed how few deleted scenes I remember seeing if I've ever seen them at all. Well, there are a lot that we've never seen, apparently. Like, there's these are the Coppola curated ones, but there are ones. There's rumored ones that we'll talk about one day when we do deleted scenes. So, yeah, in the book, it is more explicitly said that Jack Waltz is not a great guy, right? Like, he's a, he's a monster in the book. He's a pedophile in the book. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also Puzo amplifying, well, not maybe not even, maybe just revealing to the general public... Or, you know, the mass audience, uh, just how disgusting the process can be in Hollywood, you know, and just how horrible it is. I mean, even just he's a Harvey Weinstein back then. You know what I'm saying? Like he has the it's a casting couch situation. And in the book, Tom is in like the waiting room waiting to speak to him. And he sees the mother and the ingenue across from him. And she's like super duper young. And the mom and Hagen kind of like lock eyes. And have like this immediate understanding of what's going on and an instant dislike of each other's positions. And then when he's leaving the mansion after the rejection of the proposal, uh, Tom sees the young girl at the top of the stairs, like very abused. It's like the aftermath. And the mom comes in and like shuffles her away into the room. In the deleted scenes, it's sort of more... I feel like it's more lecherous because the young girl is celebrating her birthday on set in front of everybody. And we see we see Waltz there like getting the uh, like affection in front of everybody. And it's very much more normalized, whereas in the book, it feels more secretive and or at least like under the, you know, under the cuff, like downplayed. Uh, but the second clip of Hagen leaving the mansion is exactly the same is right from the book. I don't like seeing Waltz early like that. You know, I think again in the movie that that first clip, I don't think that fits. But the second clip, I wouldn't mind like that kind of puts a point, punctuates the type of person that he's dealing with. You know, instead of sort of giving it away, being like, oh, this guy's a piece of shit. He's a fucking asshole. Of course, we're given time to start to hate this guy because of his disrespect for Godfather. You know, because at this point we're ingratiated into the Don and we like his personality in, in that world. And then here comes this guy who couldn't give a shit and like actively hates the idea of him. So I like that more in the movie. In the book, I don't know. Everything just kind of plays a little differently, like uh, because we're getting more internal monologue of Tom as well. It just plays differently. But in the book, it definitely makes Tom feel more like a tough guy. I feel he feels more like a thug to me or at least he thinks of himself 
kind of higher up maybe in the food chain than he actually is, you know? He's got this air of like, I don't know, confidence that isn't, he's still confident in the movie, but it's a different type. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like he's tougher, like more of a hood in the book. If that comes across. Yeah, yeah. I I don't disagree with that. Um, He definitely has a bigger chip on his shoulder in the book. They go into Tom a a little bit more, and they will go into him a little bit more later in the book. So I had read somewhere, it might have even been Coppola, and it's one one of these behind-the-scenes things, that he, along with the editors, eliminated the whole pedophile thing in the movies so that the horse moment with Khartoum is a bit more shocking and that we can see the godfather's ruthlessness more early on that how it was playing with the whole pedophile angle was that like people were almost cheering the horse head thing yeah i could see that yeah i mean look f jack waltz anyway but definitely like screw this guy if he's like if we learn that he's that deep of a pedophile like it was making tom and the godfather look almost heroic and that's not the point of this the point is to show his effectiveness and his brute brutality with not letting down his godson right we're not supposed to see the horse head and be like yeah you know (laughs) yeah it, it is a bit telegraphed in the book right like in that way um, as soon as they mention Carthum, you're like, oh, that's how he's going to get to him. I mean, even if you haven't seen the movie yet, like you can put two and two together at that point because of how built up in his mind. Tom hates this guy already, like making him drive out to the house and make him wait all day and all this stuff. And, you, you know, he finds out he's just using him to try and get the uh, actor strike to end or whatever, <laughs> like the union to get back to work and the, all that shit. So like. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that it was a good move to sort of, um, you know, build them up slower. Otherwise, though, like, I am still surprised, and I think I'll continue to be surprised, that when they do depict something here, and maybe I shouldn't be because Puzo wrote the screenplay with Coppola, but they really do stick to the book in a lot of moments. It's a, it's a pretty faithful adaptation as far as book to movie goes, right? Yeah, I feel like they don't, add a lot they mostly eliminate right it's mostly this 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 thing of like take this out take that out take this out do we need this do we need that like what is sort of the bare necessities and then they kind of it feels like they added little um like seasonings on top like leave the gun take the cannoli or there's almost the scene exactly the same scene with like it's described of them in the kitchen and Mike's on the phone with Kay and they're like all making meatballs and stuff and Mike hangs up but they don't have the line that they do in the movie where he's like oh Mikey I love you like oh my god I'm gonna die like all that stuff like why don't you say I love you Mikey like you know teasing Mike about being like that's not in the book but that that's like such a great touch in the movie so what they add for the film feels like abridged information that should have been in the book or like little lines that would have been added by an editor or something like that you know and then the stuff that that's missing isn't really missing because like it gets along perfectly without it it doesn't really change it doesn't change the context of or the point of it all you know not it's not like that's changed it's not like you read the book and you're like well this is a whole it's not like blade runner (laughs) you read like electric dreams and you're like well this is two fucking completely different things you know, it's like it's very faithful. 
this is not a movie with like voiceover, so we're not going to get into the characters' thoughts. So sometimes a line thank here, God. there, yeah, thank, thank God. God. <laughs> Again, original cut of Blade Runner with like that horrible noir. They imagine if Pacino narrated this movie. <laughs> <laughs> what back to my sister's wedding? Yeah. I never knew my life was going to change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but like a line here or there helps illustrate certain points. And and I am also very. I am talking about these deleted scenes because I am also interested in what that original script was and what in the editing room they decided to cut down. The offer makes it sound like this movie was saved in the editing room. A lot of people have said that. Yeah. Isn't there something it's like you shoot the movie three times, like when you write it, when you shoot it, and then when you edit, like it's the final edit that is like the final idea. I don't know. And there's a lot of, I mean, there were so many amazing editors at Zoetrope. Like was, was there confirmation to Mark, Marshall Lucas ever get her hands on <laughs> I'm not this? sure, but I know she's a favorite of yours. <laughs> Save that Star Wars, but anyway. Uh, so a couple other scenes I wanted to just talk, sorry, scenes, you know, we're so movie forward, but a couple other moments in the book that I wanted to discuss book one here. Yeah. The hit on the dawn and just the way the book is framed that is different from the movie, right? Like the movie's mostly chronological. The book will do these things yeah. where it's just like, oh my God, the dawn is dead. And we're like, huh? And then they're like, like rewind like three or four <laughs> chapters and then we'll get there, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, It's funny. It feels like, like uh, that's how Tarantino would have, adapted it right like right it's like that kind of reading it's like why his movies i think you know people are like oh his movies are like novels because they're so out of order and like you could do he does things that you do in literature you don't do a movie it's like well like that's like that whole sequence of finding out the dawn is shot it's like doesn't it isn't it start with like michael on his date with Kay, and then it ends with them like seeing it on the news instead of in a newspaper and then it's like back up like yeah. it's like a, it, it be a title card like earlier that day and then it comes to what tom was doing and then it's like still earlier that day <laughs> but you know that's that's a literary device like because he wants to make the big reveal like it it gives you the opportunity in a book to have the big re- the same reveal multiple times like to build it up you know three times and then finally describe it you know, quite frankly, I like the description in the book. You find out that the Don was shot in the ass a couple times. You find out like he's quick. You know, he's kind of like Shaq, like he's big and old, but he's quick. <laughs> Shaq was quick, right? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm thinking of LeBron. Young Shaq on the magic for sure. I know yeah. we talked about Fredo already, but oh. something I do want to yeah. mention as we go along with this chapter or this book one, if you will, Fredo is actually a competent mafia soldier in the book. And the shooting of the Don is what really ruins him, if you will. Like, I know in the movie that vulnerable Fredo is a little bit different. It's more like, even if he could have saved the Don, he couldn't because he fumbles the gun, you know what I mean? Yeah, It's yeah. so different there. He's set up as sort of, like, incapable as well. Yeah. You know, he's not really a bodyguard. He's the driver. Yeah, like, sure, Pops, I'll take you. You know, like, he's got... Yeah, yeah, and when he pulls his gun out, it's like he's never pulled a gun exactly. out before. So it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, in the book, it's more that, like, like he had a shot to, like, again, save his father, and he couldn't, yeah. and he is just so grief-stricken by this that after this episode with, with his dad, like, 
he's ineffective. He's written out of the book for a while. Yeah. So, like, yeah. that's super fascinating. But let's take it back to what you were saying, Kay and Michael's date, because we get a lot more of it here in the deleted scene. So I want you to watch this. Hello? Good afternoon. It's 3 o'clock. Yeah, thank you. Michael, it's 3 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> it's 3 o'clock. We have to get up. <laughs> because we have to go to your father's house. Why do we have to? Because we have to. <laughs> you know, if we go to my father's house, mm-hmm. we can't push the beds together. Why not? Because they're in separate rooms. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, all right then. I... Then we won't go. We won't tell your father. Okay. Yeah, we'll get married first and we'll tell him later. I can't do that. Then Michael, get out of bed. Let's go tomorrow. Michael, they're expecting us. Okay, get the phone. What are you going to do? Just get the phone. Look, may I please have uh, Orchard 9, 9539, nine, please. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to be the long distance operator from oh. New Hampshire. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Come on. Stop. Come on. Got Hello. Hello? This is long distance calling. I have a collect phone call from Mr. Michael Corleone. Um, will you accept the charges? Yes. One moment, please. Hello? Hello? Hello, Tom. I'm Mike. How are you? Listen, we're up in New Hampshire still. We're going to drive down tomorrow morning. Is there anything I can do for you? No, we're fine. Now I'm going to see you Christmas. Everyone's going out to the mall? Right. Okay. Right, Mikey. Bye-bye. It's fine, Tom. We should have a special episode, too, of, like, the deleted scenes. Oh, we, you know? 100%. We'll trust one. me, I have it planned with all the DVDs. <laughs> I have it planned. Should have known. Should have known. <laughs> I guess this is a good time as any to say this because you've mentioned this to me, Mike, as well, and you're absolutely right. Some of these scenes we're going to talk about, a lot of the deleted scenes have been seen by people and used not just on the DVD, but when they've done all these, like, Godfather saga cuts or or the chronological cuts that they've aired. Like, there's, like, nine-hour cuts that they've aired on TV, right? Yep. They've used a lot of these deleted scenes to bridge bridge stuff there. I heard, I think it was De Niro talking about watching the chronological version of Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 and how that's a completely different story when it's told that way. We'll cover that one day, too, please. We, we have a lot to cover here on Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. Okay, so pillow talk between... between Michael and Kay, they have great chemistry. I know they dated. I don't know if they da- were yeah. dating here, but they definitely have great chemistry. Oh, really? Yeah. I forgot at, that. At one point, they dated. They have great chemistry together. What do you think of this scene? I actually quite like this scene. Um, as it starts kind of slow, I think you could still... There's a there's a best version of this scene. I think if they played with it a little more, it could be a little bit tighter, you know? And then, like, even just with the editing. But I like it because we never 
get to see Mike and Kay to be intimate on that level, uh, really, in the first film. So the scene is pretty word for word what happens in the book. That too. So for it being like verbatim, it comes across incredibly natural. Right. That's what really struck me is like, I do feel like they had good chemistry. I feel like it's a very good, strong scene. I do wonder why they cut this one. Maybe for pacing, I was joking with you because of his bed hair or her hair too, quite frankly. (laughs) The one thing that really gained an unintentional laugh for me, and it was a true laugh, was in in like the scene is playing so nice and so well, and there's such like a strict energy to it. And then they cut to Tom because they're on the phone. They call Tom Hagen on the phone (laughs) and they cut to him and he looks like the Grim Reaper and he's so dead. And it's like, what world is, what movie is he? He's in a completely different movie right now. So I feel like if they had just kept him uh, like ambiguous on the phone as the voice for that sequence, it, it just, it broke their, it broke their reality. You know what I'm saying? Like I was at that point in the scene, I was so with them that when they cut to Tom, it just shattered the illusion completely for me. <laughs> I'm okay that they didn't include it, but what I do like about it and the same thing that I liked in the book, like when we see Michael and Kay reconnect after Sicily, yeah. even though he's like, we should get married, Kay, he is so cold about it, right? Super distant. He's so changed. I mean, we know why he's changed. But yeah, he's so distant. Here we see like, oh, he actually did at one point really, really love her. It wasn't just a fling. They weren't just banging. Like they had all intentions to get married. Um, He didn't really see himself as part of this this life. You know, like we hear him say Mm -hmm. that even in the movie. Like, oh, this is not me, Kay. But then quickly we see that it is him, right? Yeah, yeah. Actions speak louder (laughs) than words, you know. So it's like nice to see the action of the two of them in bed like this, you know, very intimate like that. Yeah. So like Michael basically after the wedding, it seems like, never really goes like back to school. Like he says he's going to go back to school right with her, right? They've just been like pushing the beds together in hotel rooms and, and, and mm-hmm. enjoying themselves um, and really like young love. That's what, that's what this is. Yeah. These white lies that he's telling his brothers, you know, I'm not there. I'm not there. And then, and in the meanwhile, after his dad's the assassination attempt, they're like sending people to go find him places. He's not even at because he's lying yeah. about like his whereabouts and everything like that. That comes across a lot more in the, in the book. Like you get a bigger sense in the book that he really is about to like have nothing to do with that life. Like if his dad did not get shot, he legit, I really feel like he would have legitimately lived completely apart with kids upstate with K like maybe he'd become, what did he say he was going to become a history teacher? A mathematics teacher. I was like, what? Mathematics teacher. Yeah. Math. (laughs) Like, is that where he gets his cold calculating mind from? I don't know, but like I didn't picture him a numbers man. So yeah, way more of a depiction of him being this like intellectual, like student or studious type kind of person. Uh, And like, again, I don't really miss that too much from the movie because you end up seeing how smart he is and how he is a leader and how he takes charge. So you're like, Oh yeah, any, anything he set his mind to, he would have been successful. So like if he became a teacher, he probably would have wound up principal of the school or something like that, you know, <laughs> like whatever he did, if he, if he got a job at a supermarket, he'd be running a chain. of them. <laughs> one day. 
So, I, again, after the Dawn gets shot, I do have a couple other, like, just changes I did want to get into or, or differences. Yeah. One of the key ones to me, Sonny in the movie, and anyone who talks about this Sonny character, James Conn's performance, what is the term they say? Hothead, right? Like, it isn't yeah. clear that once the father is shot and Sonny's in charge, he seems, in the movie, erratic at times. He seems, like, run by his temper at times. In the book, yeah. he's much more calculated. And then I, I I have to imagine when I looked at these deleted scenes that that was also a Coppola slash editor's choice. Because if we watch these scenes quickly, Sonny is actually a pretty good Don in place of the Godfather, especially when Tom gets kidnapped. Hey, Teresa. Mother well, sweetheart, don't worry. They're going to turn Tom loose the minute they get the proposition. Hello, Michael. Where were you, where? Inky, you had me worried when I couldn't get in touch with you. How's Ma taking it? Well, she's good. You know she's been through it before. Me too, you know. Yeah. Listen, thank you very much. You're going to have a very, very extra Merry Christmas, all right? Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Listen, you two want to wait outside. I got some business I got to finish with Tessio. Thanks. What are you doing? Huh? Hey, you hang around here, you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. Maybe I can help you out. <laughs> no, no, you can't. My own, the old man will have my neck if I let you get mixed up in this. Come on. He's my father, too, Sonny. Now, you want to hear? Whose head do we blow off, Clemenza's or Paulie's? What do you mean? What do I mean? One of them set up the old man. Yeah. Not Clemenza. I don't believe it. Huh? See? The college boy is right. It was Paulie. That was the contact in the phone company on the three days that Paulie was home. Sick. He got these phone calls from the, uh, payphone across from the old man's building. So it was Paulie. Hey, thank God it was Paulie. That's punk. Well, we need Clemenza bad. This is gonna be an all-out war like the last time? Yeah. Until the old man tells me different. Wait, Sonny. Talk to Bob. Wait, come on. Salazzo's a dead man. Baby. Now, I don't care what it costs. I mean, we're gonna go after all them families. The Tatalias are gonna eat dirt. That's not how Pop would play. Listen, I'm gonna tell you something he tell you too. When it comes to the action, I'm as good as anybody, and don't forget it. First of all, something I actually do love in the book better than the movie, I'll say, and it's just easier to do in the book. And this is not like saying, you know, it was an easy feat to write the book, but I'm saying the networks that the Colleone family has made in New York. Yeah, their connections. Their connections, their power base here, who they paid off, their false safe here, their false safe there, right? Like that's yeah, yeah. so much more apparent in the book. And we see a little bit in the scene, right? Like Sonny knows instantly that his father is shot because he's paid off a cop on the beat who and he says, I'll give you a little bit more money, right? He's getting information from cops here or there. He's getting information from from informants and sources here and there because they've set up that network because they are the most powerful crime family. It's not just in New York, but in the United States. Yes. So we see a little bit of that here. We don't really get to see that so much in the movie. But the re main reason that I wanted to just watch these scenes together quickly is, uh, again, Sonny, well, yeah, he shows a little bit of his emotions here or there. He's actually quite the competent leader. He's got a plan, right? Like, he's taking charge of the home. People are coming to him 
as the Don. Um, he he's able to figure out uh, that it, that it's Pauly over Clemenza who did the betrayal, which is not so clear in the movie. It almost doesn't matter in the movie, but but in the book, it's like a mystery, right? Like we get through like Michael's thinking in the situation. Uh, he knows it all. So I guess yeah. What were your thoughts on, on these scenes and and also in the book how we see uh, Sonny's leadership come to be? Right. So in the book, I was kind of startled that the one word I'd actually use to describe Sonny once his father is shot is control. Yeah. Right. And not just like control of himself, but like control of the fucking situation, you know, almost like he's reading minds or something like it feels like he was built for that position in a lot of ways. And maybe the idea was like his father didn't want him. His father knew he would be a good Don, but just the wrong kind of Don in the wrong kind of time. Like probably a great Don when the Godfather was young, but not the Don the world needs now, I feel. is like kind of how I'm feeling about Sonny in the book. It's great how he's he's like sensitive and uh, like when he finds out his dad is shot, like he doesn't go flying off the handles. Like even in that scene, like he starts crying. Uh, like, but then again, he regains control and he starts like getting shit done. And then when people come to him, like it very much mirrors the scene in the opening of the film in the book of when people are coming to the Godfather and like, oh, this you imagine this is what it's like when it's not his daughter's wedding day. You know, when people are actually just coming to him like in the middle of the week to talk to him for a favor or something like that. And he's conducting business. But yeah, in in the movie, I, I don't know, like you have to have more of a shorthand in film and the Corleone brothers, and I don't want to, don't take this the wrong way, but it's kind of like a Three Stooges situation with them where it's like, you got the angry one, you got the weak one, and then you got the smart one. It's it's like a, you know, it's like a cartoon kind of trope thing, but like, you need that. You need to get to the point and, and cut to the chase with these characters, you know, and I think it works fine for the movie because those are aspects of these characters. It's just not all they're composed of. And in the novel, we get to dig deeper and get through a couple more layers of these people. I think for them, I don't know if people would have connected with Sonny as much if they saw his vulnerabilities. You know what I'm saying? Like, I like that. I think nowadays it plays a lot better. Uh, and I think in the novel, it's better. You can you can deal with complex characters. I don't want to say easier because it's not easy to write any of that stuff, but like, there's more of a it's more of part of writing a book as opposed to making a movie right like in a movie it's it's not negative to have a one note character if that note is a strong note that they can sustain like an opera singer and i feel like the godfather's like that you know and you know there's nothing wrong with that but i do appreciate the reveal in the novel and stuff and of those scenes of like there's this other side to sunny he's not just that he doesn't just fly off the handle. It's not like you made my sandwich wrong. Oh, fucking burn the world down. You know, it's like he's not that guy, even though the movie kind of depicts him that way. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. The movie depicts him that way. These deleted scenes, once again, are pretty faithful to the book when it comes to that. That's why yeah. that's why I wanted to talk about them so much. It's funny, like I feel bad for James Caan, and then I don't. I feel bad for him because this is really showing his range as an actor, right? He's right. really great in these scenes. It, it shows like yeah. that Sonny is so layered. But then I don't because people fucking love Sonny as depicted in the movie. His 
masculinity, whether that be toxic today or not, is something that, like, real mafia people have said, like, they've looked up to. And then people watching the movie are like, yeah, I wish I could have the balls of Sonny. This is not me saying that. I'm just saying I've heard so many people say that, right? Like, he's a hothead, but he gets he gets shit done almost. And so it's interesting in the James Caan perspective from the film, he, he seems to have a lot cut out, and we don't get him in Godfather 2, really, right? On the other hand, you're right, like, the film version is more legendary because it hits the point home of who he can be in those moments. Yeah, it, it's his dominant persona in the movie. Alpha, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know, like, I forget how it's depicted in the book precisely, but, like, I don't know if I would believe book Sonny beating the shit out of Carlo in the same way that he does in the film, you know? And maybe that's because James Caan was bringing a little extra something to those (laughs) scenes. I don't know. But it just, like, in the movie, and same with his death, you know? Like, I believe in the film he would sort of run blindly into battle, right? Like, have no sort of second thought and just be like, but he's not that rash in the books. He is more strategical. He just is just all of the Corleones are just by having their dad as their dad uh, being around. And sure, he may like screw around a little too much or, you know, not be as kind of serious as people want him to be. But that doesn't mean that he still doesn't have his shit together in a, in a, in a way where he can get things done and done, you know, efficiently. A hundred percent. So we're going to bounce around a bit because, again, the book goes in a interesting order goes back and forth i have the movie order in my head so i'm just gonna go through my loose notes here the hospital scene is i think equally as good equally as powerful obviously the movie is a different kind of power the visual power of it Um, but i thought the suspense was pretty good here yeah and so the baker already returns um that's depicted pretty well we get to see McCluskey for the first time, as we do mm-hmm. in the movie. But then it goes off on this, like, McCluskey tangent of, like, <laughs> you know, why he's a corrupt cop and, like, putting his sons through Fordham University and stuff like that. Dude, holy shit. I was like, <laughs> did Stephen King start writing for a little bit? Because this is exactly what he fucking does, right? Where it's like, here's a bunch of characters. And then it's like, now I'm going to tell you they're entire life up until this point or like their origin story or some shit and then cut back to like the main story and it's like oh his dad took him around and uh, like showed him off when he was a little boy and his dad was a cop (laughs) and this and that he's like basically groomed to be a big fucking asshole when he grew up and all this shit you know and he loves it and it's like of course he's corrupt he wants us he's gonna send his kids to fucking fordham i was like what is it's kind of hilarious. I don't, I don't know. So funny. I mean, I understand it's like the it's it's the system is corrupt, you know, so everybody's in on it. Like, I don't know. There's, there's no honesty anywhere in society anywhere. So just do whatever the fuck you want. Like, that's what these people are doing in this story, whether it be the cops or the mobsters, like they're making their own rules. And like, the you know, there's society's <laughs> rules. And then there's like the way they want to play it. <laughs> right. There's no full record of all the deleted scenes of the godfather much of it has been lost as well right they shot so much but there's also no record of them shooting anything related to this 
this seems like it would be something that both Puzo and Coppola agreed did not belong in this film. Yeah. I'm I'm totally okay with with the McCluskey stuff not being in the movie. I will say this: Joe Montana's um, when he does the McCluskey and cops in general in the audiobook. Oh my god! He does it with like like a really like top of the morning to your Irish accent. Oh no! He's like oh, Officer McCluskey. He really? yeah. He's like yeah. Like uh, oh, Michael. oh my god, John C. John C. Riley in um, uh, Gangs of New York, yeah, Gangs of New York. He's like, I don't get the patty wagon her here. No, really, really, he does. Like he he does it. Even McCluskey, who's like clearly born in America, like he does the accent like that. And he's just like, oh boy, I put my son through Fordham University. Like it's just like stuff like that. Boyo, boyo. <laughs> um, so so it is funny to listen to because the whole time he's like doing these Italian accents, and then suddenly it's like. I think Joe Montana just like was sick, probably sick of doing the Italian accents. It is let me show my range, and I'll be an Irishman. <laughs> yeah, let me show. <laughs> <laughs> I just needed to uh, bring that up. That's magically delicious. All the more reason to hear this book, Mister Colleone. All bastards are liars. Shakespeare wrote poems. About what I gotta do is guy. What I gotta do is guy. All right, Mike. Took a little break, but I'm back. I'm Daddy podcasting. If you hear cooing and the sound of a uh, baby drinking a bottle you know why it's not a bottle of coppola wine i promise you not yet <laughs> what formula blend do we have today no uh, <laughs> just a couple other things you know wanted to talk about yep. back at that sunny scene we just mentioned that how they figured out that it was Polygato and not clemenza through this whole yes. tracing of, of phone numbers and finding out how many sick days he was taking. There is this interesting scene they shot that does mirror what happens in the book, which I actually really liked in the book. I get why it wasn't kept in the movie, but it's basically when uh, Sonny tells Clemenza, like, I know Paulie is your up-and-coming guy, but, you know, I don't want to see him anymore. And Clemenza basically does the deed. But we learn a little bit about, like, the inner workings of, of Mafia stuff. What do you think of the Poligato character in the book as compared to the movie before we talk about this scene? In the movie, he's, like, almost a, no, a non-entity. Just like a, like, just like a thug, kind of, you know, just like a common thug that works for them. Yeah, you feel like, oh, it's just, like, another one of their uh, button men has, like, grew some balls and thought that they could, like, switch sides or something like that. And in and in this, it's like, oh no, like he this guy was being like ready to he was like Christopher in the Sopranos, like kinda, right? Like he is being ready to kind of like step up and and have his own territory or something. Like I got a bigger sense that he was way more important. And he tried to make a move, you know? He tried <laughs> he made a move, he got a little his eyes got bigger than his or his pockets got bigger than he was able to hold. And uh in the book it just seems like, you know. Maybe it wasn't going there fast enough for him that he might have expected to be in a bigger position by now or whatever. But like way more development for this character. It feels like a much bigger loss for Clemenza in the book. Yeah. In this first act, he is like, believe it or not, one of the main characters. In the movie, he's just the guy basically being like, oh, my God, how much money's in that purse? What I would give for that. Right. And we see him on the side here, there uh, in the book. He's mentioned that he's a classmate of Michael's, right? right? The future godfather. That's a big deal. There's also the scene of when, you know, America Bonacera, the funeral director, 
wants revenge. We actually see the revenge being taken out. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a brutal scene. Yeah, Polygato is the one who's in charge of organizing that, really. And and then that scene, again, we see, like, just basically it's a setup. Like, he, they hire some boxers who work for the family. They they set those two guys up who, who raped the girl, and they just, like, kick their ass. And you're right, it's brutal and violent. And it's like, oh, my God, Puzo, geez. No uh, pun intended, but he does not pull his punches. But we see, that, like you said, Gatto is a rising star in this family. He made a, a move. He got caught. And there's a little sadness in Clemenza. You can tell, like, he doesn't show it. But when we get, like, the inner dialogue of, like, oh, who's going to do the job and who's going to basically replace uh Oh, yeah, Paulie. yeah. It's like a, He's going down his list. Yeah. But I liked it because it's like the minutiae, again, of the mafia. Uh-huh. Let's watch how they depict it in the deleted scene. Beautiful car. Yeah, beautiful car. Stupid Detroit sends it with wooden bumpers. Yeah, they're going to deliver the chromium bumpers in a couple of months. Because of the war. Hey, the war's over. I had to wait for over two years for the car to come with stupid wooden bumpers. 22, soft nose load. Accurate up to five foot. Today you make your bones on poorly. You understand everything? Understood, Mr. Clemenza. So those two sequences are, are just basically what happens before the leave the gun, take the cannoli. In yeah. the movie, we just see the cannoli shop and we see Richard Castellanos. You know, improv, leave the gun, take the cannoli, which is iconic, right? Here, it's just more stuff from the book, like going to see the apartment. What I found interesting in the book and here as well, like, I'm glad the way they cut it, but at least it depicted almost like once Paulie is marked as a dead man, they sort of went about their way like a regular day and just killed him at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that guy, uh, Rocco... The one who's like essentially replacing Paulie in, in the organization. I liked in the book how you saw that there were these men who were not quite made men. They hadn't made their bones yet, but they were ready to step in for when that chance would happen. Like, you know, they're just waiting right. by the phone and it's like when they get the call, you better answer it. You better kill the person you have to kill, essentially. And then suddenly you're in with the family. Yeah, they have like this whole roster of like like triple a mobsters waiting on the bench you know and and he and he goes down his list of like his top three guys and like rocco is like this number he's like yeah like considering all the things i need like he's perfect for this uh so he gets like the call up to the big game and he's like ready to go and do do whatever but i like that that concept too you definitely don't get the sense of that in the movie like that's the thing too it's like you get the sense of their scope in the film but it's such an intimate family portrait kind of thing and in the book like you said i think earlier is like you really get the sense that they're everywhere you know like much more the sense that like oh they they've got uh like people hiding in the shadows like reporting like they're, they've got people on the newspaper people in the police station people in in the government like people everywhere just like you don't even know who's connected to the corleones you know it's like it, you just don't want to say anything because someone's listening so it's really cool like the way that puzo is much more, I guess, for lack of a better term, like literal with like the size of the organization. And then um, in the movie, how Coppola is just like, we're, we're seeing like the cabal, like the, like the Illuminati yeah. 
that's how it feels right and like you get the you get the grandeur of their control just from being within the inner circle is how it feels so he's like kind of shed a lot of what's sort of like lower you know lower tier kind of mafia stuff from the movie the movie's like family as in like their nuclear family and associate and the book is like family, <laughs> right. you know, like the mafia yeah, yeah, family. Yeah, the, book, like the whole, right, yeah. yeah. So it is, it is interesting in that respect. And we get that depicted a little bit in this scene, um, these deleted scenes, but more again so in the book. The, the minutia really, really is great in the book. Something that I think, and, and I think we'll end here because book one ends here. Something that I think is depicted pretty similarly in book and film is... Michael at the restaurant killing the Turk and McCluskey. I thought it was a little bit different of how Michael is like selected to be McCluskey's killer. And, sorry, and really the Turk's killer. Um, it's a little bit more Michael coming into the room and being like, he hit me and I'm mad in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and in the book, they're like, no, like this is basically the only way. In the movie, it's kind of like Mike is like, it's like, because this happened to me, I should be the guy who pulls the trigger, is how it kind of feels like in the movie. In the book, though, it kind of is like, Mike's the only guy who could do this and get away with it. Does that make yeah. sense? Like, I feel like in the I feel like in the movie, people are almost like, Mike, you can't do this. We'll get someone else to do this. Like, I can't remember exactly how, but that's the sense of that in that room, you know, before he's like, you know, he's like, Tom, he's a he's a bad cop. He's a he's a crooked cop. And like, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you got guys on uh, paper, you know, right? They love that right? story. You can fix it, and uh, so I get the sense that people are just like, no, Mike, like it's it's almost like this point. I know you do this, and now you're definitely in, and like you've crossed the line. In the in the book, it's like Mike is like it's got to be me because like everybody else has their role and I don't have my role yet. And like, I'm not going to be missed and not, they'll never see it coming from me, you know, and you can't have someone else run in there guns and blazing. Like it's, we got to make a point. We, you know, uh, like this is personal, like all kinds of shit, like has to like be signified with this one moment here. So like, I don't know. I got, I got that sense in the book. Like, I think they, again, they both play well for the mediums that they're presented in. Okay. So like the book works better for the book and the movie works better for the movie because that's just how the characters are built up to those points. And I think it's equally as shocking for them both to be going through with it the way that they're characterized up until this point. I'm still surprised by both of them to be, to take sort of like, it's less of a hard turn in the book than it is in the book. It feels like this thing that's been kind of like boiling over, but in the movie, it just feels like Michael hears a record scratch and like a sudden like, I'm this guy now, which is fine too, because he's a Corleone and like, I've got enough to support that, but it's definitely interesting how it's depicted differently. I would say the huge difference to me is Sonny's, a reaction from the book and in the movie. In the movie, he's like, Mike, really? It's like, you know, it's, it's not like the army. You know, you got to get close range and hit him, bada bing, all over the Ivy League suit, all that, right? In the book, he smiles when Michael suggests it, and it was like, I knew you were one of us all along. I was waiting for yes. this moment. Yeah, yeah. That's what's exciting me about this. Like, I, I knew you had it in you. He starts laughing because he's like, 
happy. He's like, my real, my brother. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, your true colors, finally. Like, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I feel like that's the same thing I was trying to get across, right? Is that like in the book, it's like, oh, of course. But in the movie, it's like, you know, cool your jets. <laughs> but then once like uh, he's picked up in front of Jack Dempsey's restaurant. <laughs> Which always is yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the U-turn on the George Washington Bridge and, and, you know, the restaurant is almost word for word. You know, what's going on? Yeah. Obviously, look, the scene in the movie is amazing. And what isn't said <laughs> in the, the notes they don't play, if you will, in the movie are really what like makes it but in terms of what's on the page here that's pretty much what we yeah. get up until you know the turk and mccluskey are shot well there's one extra beat in the book where mike asks to use the restroom and i'm not sure if it's in the movie but the turk like looks over his shoulder at someone in a booth and the guy kind of signals him that it's like it's all clear like i you know like so we definitely know that there's more people in that restaurant on on the Turk's side, you know, at least one other guy. You're right, because the book does make it clear, too, that, like, there was no shot of a deal, that the Turk is sort of just, like, buying time. Right, for his next attack, yeah. The movie does a good job of creating a little ambiguity, like, Michael, this is his point of no return, right? Like, like we don't know. There could have been a deal in the movie. In the book, again, it's very clear that, like, this is all bullshit. This is all a setup. So yeah, like, yeah. They, the Corleone brothers figured it out ahead of time, too, and Mike is sort of, um, I don't want to say reassured because it's not a reassuring thing, but like he's certain at the meeting that this is just the dilly-dally. Like he's just, you know, he's just running the clock out and stuff. Even though the Turk, when the Turk is like, I would never do that ever again. He's like, you guys caught me, yeah, right? Yeah. He's like, you caught me, right? Like. <laughs> He's like, why would I try that again? And then Mike's like, now I know he's going to try and kill my dad. And and like, not that I thought it was going to happen, but like the movie does a good job of making it eerie and kind of creepy and almost like a horror movie. But the book feels like a horror movie because I'm not even sure that Mike's going to get out of there alive. You know, like if that meeting went longer, I mean, I wouldn't have put it past the Turk in the book to have killed Mike at the restaurant. Like if things got heated, if things didn't start going his way. Uh, I'm not saying like it's supposed to be read that way, but like the the scene was sort of just like working on me in more of like a, a dread way. You know, like there's just like everything seemed like there's no good way out of this room. And like when someone walks into a room with the intent to kill two people, there's no good way out of it in the first place. So the one big difference at the end we get is after I believe in the movie after Michael shoots the two of them and we see him like you know hesitate to drop the gun and run out like he gets into the car and then that's it here it's like Tessio and him like you said almost horror movie escaping like you know riding through the streets getting onto a freighter uh, to, <laughs> to Italy and then steaming off and I do love this because you know me I love the idea of Michael at war you know, his war stories, right? And he, he fought in the Pacific. It, to him, it's akin to, uh, you know, getting shot, getting taken off an island, but knowing that the other people there, the other soldiers mm -hmm. there are going to fight this big battle without you. 
and you will be removed from that. There's a piece in that, and there's a little weird feeling in that as well. And I thought that was a really cool moment in the book that you probably could not depict on screen without, again, a voiceover. Like, it reminded me of war. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I much prefer, like, the newspapers that we get uh, as opposed to, you know, him getting in a car, driving as fast as they can down to the docks, him changing his clothes in the car, like, being, like, shuffled onto a ship like uh like a stowaway of some kind or another or all that uh like mikey here's your papers here's some money like good luck we'll be in touch here's the address like i don't need all that but like it's fun to think about that that's what happened <laughs> you know that he went right from the restaurant and got on a boat to italy yeah it's pretty I, I kind of always <laughs> wondered like how he got there right because when we first see him in Sicily, he's like walking around with guards and he's like the man sort of already. So um, it is cool, but I- I'm okay with them not depicting it in the film. And that's where book one ends. And I think it's a great ending. Like, you know, you mentioned it earlier in the episode. This little book one is truly a book. It's like a little novella of, yeah, uh, you know, has a beginning, middle and end. That's super exciting. So yeah. I wonder, did they mention it? I don't think they mentioned it in the offer, but like, was this at any point it? <laughs> you know, like, it kind of feels like it, right? Until, like, you know, he's like, oh, where do I go from here or something? I mean, there really aren't that many dangling threads right now, which is going to be interesting to see where, where we pick up. And if I've, memory serves, like, we jump. We're going to start jumping around a lot. For you know, we're going to get off book. We're going to get not off book, but the book's going to get off movie. Oh, movie. For a things while. are going to get weird, and, and I can't wait <laughs> to talk about them, Mike. Well, you know, this was awesome. Let's get to reading. Let's yes. get to reading that uh, parts two, three, and wherever we decide to end, and and that'll be our next episode, unless for whatever reason they they cool. release one from the Hard and More theaters, and we we can yes. catch it but we are going to continue on this book journey thank you for joining us here and though it's not in the book mike why don't you you know and and this properly and polygato's life properly <laughs> leave the gun take the cannoli this is the end beautiful friend This is the end, my only friend, the end of our elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end, no safety.